did that preacher's kiss of death and told you that I had an easy one this week. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, we'll see. We'll look at that. Not easier, that's true. Um, Revelation chapter 10 might be useful to have it open um, as, we, as we look through it. Um, is that right still? No. Can we put it back to the first slide, please, man? Thanks. Fabulous. Okay, we are covering two chapters, but we've only just read one. We're going to be focusing just on chapter 10 um, as we look through this. Um, Lisa was talking last week about the, the seven trumpets. And uh, it's important for us to locate um, today's message um, in the midst of that because it's the first six trumpets and then today's message and then the seventh trumpet. So it's important to realize something about these seven, these symbols of seven. Um, they're not consecutive things that consecutive events that have to happen in a certain order. So they're not multiple seven things happen, okay? Best way to look at it is that these are different lenses through which you're looking at the same reality. But the reality is that in every single one of these sequences of judgment and, and consequences is that there is a seventh one of completion, okay? But we haven't got there yet in this passage. In this passage, we are in the midst of trumpets one to six. And trumpets one to six are about judgment and consequence for the actions of disobedience of the world. And something happens between trumpets one and six and trumpet seven. If trumpet seven is completion, something happens between them. And it's a sense of delay. There's a moment that stops. The angel comes down after all that devastation that we've been reading about last week and hearing about, the, an angel comes down and straddles the sea and the land. And it says this. It says, time's up. It says there will be no more delay. It says time is up in verse 6 of chapter 10. Now, I don't know if you've experienced that panic and that horror whenever you're in the midst of an exam and you think you've got loads of time left to get all those questions done that you were leaving to the end, and they tell you, five minutes left. Have you ever maybe you done for your children, um, you know, you want them to get ready, you want them to go somewhere, you give them the five-minute warning, don't you, and say, you've got five minutes and then we're going. This is the angel of the Lord giving the universe a five-minute warning. Time's up. But there is a delay. And this delay is seen in 2 Peter Chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. This is seen throughout the entirety of Scripture. How many times does God warn Israel that they're being disobedient and nasty things will happen? We have it in several pages, but these warnings happen over hundreds of years. And people still ignore and still ignore. I think out of the passage that Lisa spoke on last week, one of the most heartbreaking verses is at the very end of the chapter where it says, the rest of mankind that were not killed by the plague still did not repent of the work of their hands 
They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, and wood that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. In spite of all this horror, people still didn't repent and turn away from their sins. But yet God still allows time. But like saying, right, we're going now. No, no, we're really going now. No, no, we're really, really going now. There is a delay, and we live in that delay, in the midst of the six trumpets. So the perennial problem for, <clears throat> for preachers is the, is the problem of so what? So what does that got to say to us? What, what about where we fit into it? What about where God's people fit into it? The first audience was the seven churches that John is writing to. We need to remember that. It isn't just to us. His audience were the seven churches. And the seven churches all lay on a particular spectrum. On one end, there's passionate and persecuted. On the other end, is apathetic and ineffective. There were those churches that were on fire for the gospel who were standing out, but yet were being burdened with oppression and being persecuted for their faith. And then there were those who were having an absolute whale of a time, who were safe and secure because they were apathetic and ineffective. Whenever I wrote that phrase down, I realized that wasn't just the seven churches. I think that reflects the state of the Christian church, full stop. I think it reflects the state of some of our hearts, even within this place, within our denomination, within the evangelical church. There are some who are passionate, but may end up getting persecuted for it. And there are those who are apathetic and ineffective, but having a whale of a time. So John was the first person to see this vision. Then he was conveying it to the seven churches who needed to hear it. And we, by extension, are here. Did you realize that you, you and I, we are in Revelation? Oh, someone's just fallen off their seat. (laughs) Did you realize you are in Revelation? Because Revelation covers the entirety of human history. And this is a call to a a witness. We are part of that call. We are within Revelation. This is talking to us. We are in this vision. What I want us to look at in particular is um, the fact that we are not just spectators. Now, there's a there's been a few shows that have been in the West End and stuff, sing-along shows, something like um, uh, Sound of Music, sing-along Sound of Music. Who's been to one of those? We've got a couple of people who are willing to, uh, you know, a couple of people there. I'll not ask about the Rocky Horror Picture show because that could be really embarrassing. Or, no, it's okay. Um, or maybe you've had that experience of going to a, a comedy night and you realize when you get there, you look at your tickets and you're on the front row. And tonight was the night that you had to wear that yellow luminous jumper. What's going to happen? You are going to become part of the show, aren't you? Audience participation. That's why we, um, I said to Lisa, that's, that's really important that you get someone from the congregation to come and read. Because it's about audience participation, but we get a bit, a bit fidgety when that happens. We're going to have something interactive now. And the yeah. Who had Buckner as the heckler? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, it is interactive. <laughs> You're now on recorded now, Ian. Thank you. He'll delete himself. He'll delete himself. Right. <laughs> this is about 
being involved. We are not just spectators in this. John was not just a spectator. He is called to take part in this vision. Here's the key verses I want us to briefly look at. Verses 8 to 11. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. <clears throat> the little scroll was given. He was asked to take the little scroll and to eat it and digest it. This is really reminiscent of, if you want to turn to it, to Ezekiel, the call of Ezekiel. Now, it's important that uh, we realize that to understand some of the language and images of Revelation, we need to know some of the apocalyptic prophets. So looking at Ezekiel and the call of Ezekiel in chapter 2, I'll read a little bit of it. Ezekiel is uh, in Babylon. He's part of the exile of God's people. God's people are experiencing the judgment and consequences of their sin that have been warned about for many, many years. And yet Ezekiel is called to still prophesy. And says, he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have revolted against me to this day. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen for their rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Moving on to verse 7, it says, You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I've got to say to you. Do not rebel like that house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. And it was a scroll which was unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and warning, mourning and woe. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll and then go and speak to the house of Israel. This is the call of the prophet, the call of the prophet Ezekiel. Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 to 11, and Ezekiel 2, 1 to 3, and further on in verse 10, is all about a prophetic witness. Ezekiel is called to give a prophetic witness to the people of his day. John is called to give a prophetic witness to the people of his day and to us. And I would go and extend and say that we are called to give a prophetic witness to our world today. So it begs the question, what does a prophet look like? Clearly looks like this. A prophet has a long white beard. Malcolm Nixon was chuffed at this and I think Mick was as well. A prophet has a long white beard, male or female. Um, <laughs> clearly not. You want to know what a prophet looks like? Look in a mirror. That's why there's one here. You want to know what a prophet looks like? Look in a mirror. But no, a prophet is a really spiritual person who comes up with these really wise sayings from the front or images and strange, strange utterances. No, a prophetic witness is something else. A prophetic witness is any time that you share God's perspective 
onto an earthly situation. Anytime you share God's word, God's love, God's compassion to a situation where heaven meets earth, where God's kingdom invades the kingdom of this earth in big and small ways, these prophetic moments happen at the daily conversations around the coffee machine at work. Where heaven meets earth and you are the conduit of that. It's the times when we stand up for the values of the kingdom of God over and above the values that are preached by the world. It's whenever by uh, awkwardness you make people feel judged by following God's ways rather than their ways. When you choose not to swear, when you choose not to go out and take drugs and, and smoke and sleep around, when people who are Christians say, I'm going to save sex until I'm married. When they say, I'm not going to go down the avenue of trying to acquire as much wealth as whatever possible. When we are friends with the person that everyone else says we shouldn't be because they don't fit. And we are friends with them because Jesus loves them. We have a prophetic witness. And that's what it is. We're told to eat the little scroll. Now, um... I was really tempted to try and find, you know, that rice paper? So everybody could, everybody could have a little bite, but um, I didn't. Um, <laughs> John's told to eat this little scroll. Now, this little scroll, I've seen pictures of a tiny little scroll in his hand. Actually, it was a little scroll in the hand of an angel that was straddling the sea and the land. I don't think it was that little a piece of scroll. What it means, it was a manageable version of the scroll that had been opened by the Lamb. The scroll that had been opened by the Lamb was the one that explained how the universe works and what he's done about it. We can't fully comprehend the entirety of it. So we get a booklet format as opposed to a book. A little scroll instead of the big scroll. It's the message that we need to take in in order to pass on. And what is that message? It's the message that isn't just brand new in the gospel. The gospel good news has been God's news throughout the entirety of history. The world is in a mess. The reason why it's in a mess is sin and disobedience and idolatry. And then we can say, well, what's been done about it? And we think about the cross. What can be done is we can live a life that reflects the values of the kingdom of God. If you do that, that is heaven on earth. When we say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's a daily prayer. It's not a future one. It's about being heaven on earth now. But if you don't do it, the world will continue the way it is going. Have you ever seen the, um, Blackadder? There's a brilliant scene in Blackadder, I think it's the second one, where um, Blackadder's trying to teach Baldrick how to count. And he says, I'm like, there's, there's three beans here. So two beans plus one bean is some beans. No, no. Well, two beans plus one bean is, okay, some beans. He can't see the logic between two plus one equals three. Yeah, that's correct. People can't see the logic between sin and consequences and suffering and judgment and God. They can't see that, that that's where we end up. But there's a promise that we have as part of this message. All will be sorted. It will be sorted. And so in the midst of that, you have a choice to make of which side you want to be on, the side of righteousness or unrighteousness. That's the message God's message from the time a piece of fruit was eaten in Eden through to the cross and beyond to even today. There is a choice to be made. So John is told, take and eat. God's word 
his word in scripture, his words of prophecy need to be internalized, digested, assimilated, and integrated into the very DNA of our souls, not just tasted. They need to become part of us. There was a program a little while ago called You Are What You Eat. There were some fairly disgusting elements of it. But it's true, isn't it? When you eat something, the mineral constituents and nutrients become part of who you are. So how much of God's word are you regularly taking in and not just tasting it, but actually devouring it, digesting it, and letting it change who you are and letting it become part of you? N.T. Wright says this, the prophet can only speak God's word insofar as it has become part of the prophet's own life. Don't think that this prophet is a big gray-bearded man with flowing robes at the front with a scroll. You have a prophetic witness. We need to devour the word of God. How much do we take of God's word? Well, the thing is, when we take and we eat, it's sweet and it's sour. That's what we're told. I'm not just talking about a Chinese meal. It's sweet to the taste, but it's sour to digest. It's a bit like heartburn, reflux, or whenever you've eaten something and, and oh, it didn't agree with me. How often do we take in God's word and it doesn't agree with us? Because we want to go a different way. It's sour to the taste. Because actually, it's not just happy, clappy, good news. We're told to share the gospel. That's what it is, isn't it? The good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news of Jesus Christ is great, isn't it? But it's also nasty. It's nice, but it's nasty. And I'll tell you why. And this is, we need to understand this. Why the prophetic witness is both great news, but also really tough. Because good news, if it is really good news, has got to be the truth. It can't be everything's all right and nice if it isn't. Ruth um, shared the story um, in the first service, not so much here, about uh, a woman that she's working with and that she had let her um, debts pile up. Her, her bills had come in and she hadn't even opened them. I'm sure this is the same in many different spheres, but before this person could address their situation, the reality of opening those bills had to be faced. The prophetic witness that all of us are called to do is simply this. Hold up a mirror. God's mirror. To reflect reality back onto itself. Someone said this is the job of the artist. I think it's the job of the Christian to reflect reality back to the rest of society. That's why there's a big mirror here for two reasons. That was one of them. I remember this because um, when we were getting ready for our, our wedding day, I went to the suit shop to get my wedding outfit, and I went with my father-in-law, Peter, who's an, who was an incredibly dapper gentleman, dressed really well. And uh, so we went to um, the, the, I was going to say uniform shop, you know what I mean, <laughs> the... Uh, the outfit shop, and uh, me being a true, passionate Irishman, we had the theme of shamrocks and roses, so I said, I've seen it, I've seen it in the brochure, I want a dark green morning suit. <laughs> it was great, the pictures, the guys looked fantastic in it. So um, I took the coat in the morning, I went into the changing room, got changed, looking, yeah, looking good. 
opened the curtain and walked out. My father-in-law stands there with his glasses folded up. You look like a leprechaun. (laughs) I didn't get that suit. He said, you will look back in 10, 15, 20 years at your wedding photographs and you will regret looking like that. I thought I looked great and then I looked in the mirror and I looked like a leprechaun. (laughs) Sometimes telling the truth is difficult, isn't it? It's not easy. It's not easy to tell the truth. And especially it's not easy to tell the truth and reveal reality to those who don't want to know about it. We came up with the title for the series, Reality Revealed, um, after brainstorming loads of ideas on Lisa's board. I think there's half of them are still up there. And we went through different variations, and we just plumped on this one. We thought, oh, it sounds all right. We've been amazed that week after week, as we've read, as we've prepared, as we've delivered, as we've been in conversation, how much this has been a prophetic word. Reality is being revealed throughout looking at Revelation throughout looking at our lives. And here, the prophetic witness is about revealing reality, showing people what's really going on. One of the most popular questions that come across our path when we do Alpha, maybe you've experienced it as well from non-Christians, why is there suffering in the world? There is suffering in the world because of sin, idolatry, and unrighteousness. That's the answer. It's not the answer we like to give. It's not the answer people like to hear. But that is the truth. We're all victims and we're all perpetrators. That's the mirror being held up to reality. But we don't like to hear that, do we? Good news has to be the truth. To know that we need to be saved is the prerequisite of being saved. To know that we need to be saved means that we must be in a pretty dire circumstance. We may not realize that we're in a dire circumstance until we're told that we are. But why is it so sour to the taste if it's such good news? Why is it so sour in our stomachs? Because it's not popular. Here is the message that I mentioned before. A basic outline of the message that we try and share of the good news. And here is what the world's response in general is. The world is in a mess. Um, I don't actually agree with that. Um, Actually, no, it's not. It's nice. Everyone's nice, aren't they? Everyone's lovely. Everyone's just like me. This is the reason why the world is in a mess. Well, it's not me. It's them. It's, those, it's that person in the office next door. They're a nightmare. Or my next door neighbor. Or the person who beat me up whenever I was at school. Or those strange people who come across the sea in boats to try and find a new life. It's their fault. It's not ours. Oh, it's the guy sitting in the Oval Office. It's his fault. Or her in 10 Downing Street. It's their fault. It's never mine. We say what has been done in the cross of Jesus Christ. What can be done in following him nah, it's okay, we can do it ourselves, thanks. Human progress, that's the watchword, isn't it? We can do it. Yes, we can. Bob the Builder. Yeah, all the evidence points to that. Yeah, two world wars, um, global devastation, economic and environmental damage. Oh, and yeah, and the threat of nuclear war. Yeah, we're doing really well. But if you do follow Christ and his ways, if we follow the way of Christ, 
it will be heaven on earth. If every person on this world followed the ways of Jesus, there would be no more suffering or sorrow or tears because that's what we're promised in eternity. Heaven on earth in those small insignificant moments when you give that cup of water to the person who's thirsty, when you counsel that person out of debt, when you say hello to the person who looks lonely, that's heaven meeting earth. I don't really like that picture. <laughs> don't like that. It spoils my fun, really. I want to do this. I want to do that. It's a bit restrictive. Besides, my truth is as important as yours, isn't it? But the thing is, if you don't follow Jesus, if you don't hear these warnings, if you don't see the judgment of the ages, the world is going to keep on going as it is. Human progress is no progress at all, actually. It's not very nice of God, is it? All these bad things happening. It's almost like, you know, we do bad things and then bad things happen to us. Well, God's really nasty for letting that happen, isn't he? And the promise that all will be sorted. But everything's okay as it is. Everyone's okay. You have a choice to make. No thanks or yes, please. Or what's more common these days is the head in the sand. That's the world's response. They don't want to accept that there's a choice to move. They don't want to hear the hard truths. They close their ears. We have to have this prophetic witness. It is not about standing with a placard around our chest or calling out you filthy sinners because we all are. It's about living a different way, living a different lifestyle, speaking truth into people's lives when they are believing falsehoods, warning people of the consequences of some dangerous ways that the world can be going. This verse here, verse 11 of chapter 10. Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And the word that struck me there was the word again. This has happened within the six trumpets of judgment and consequence of sinful action. The time is almost up, but please go out again. Go and get some more. Go and tell people again that Jesus loves them. Go and tell them again. Go and show them a different way of living. And what is the promise that we've been given? The promise is that only some will respond positively. Some will listen and respond. That's what it says in Ezekiel chapter 3. Some will respond. Many won't. It echoes what Jesus said about the narrow gate and the broad way. There's going to be a smaller amount of people in heaven than there will be outside of it. Some will listen and respond. Many will not respond. And some of those will even choose to oppose and persecute you. That's the reality of it. But we're told John is, the churches are, God's people are, we are. Go, prophesy again. And this is where there's a bit of a, a choice that we have to make. And it's a choice between our public witness and our private faith. Even in this past couple of days, I've spoken to someone, and they talked about the fact that their faith was a private matter. When in Scripture at all, or in the life of Jesus, did you get the impression that we are meant to be quiet about it? Yeah, we're not meant to go showing off our righteousness. We're meant to pray in secret so we don't show off. But where are we not meant to be a light to the Gentiles? When are we not meant to be salt to society? When are we not meant to make a difference and let people know? Um, Lisa was uh, mentioning that the six uh, trumpets were, um, were representative or echoes of the plagues of Egypt. 
The plagues of Egypt were a consequence of disobedience. They were also a warning of what could happen if you don't follow the Lord. So they were signs of judgment, but there was also a massive sign of hope in the midst of that. And the sign of hope was doorposts covered in blood. If you were walking through the streets of Goshen, the Hebrew village or town where the slaves lived, within Egypt, I think you might have noticed the paint jobs that have gone on over one particular night. And the fact it wasn't paint, it was blood. I think you would have noticed, because this is a public declaration of we are Yahweh's people in a place of exile and oppression. Egyptians could have walked past going, well, those are Israelites. We should go and pay them a little visit. And then we flash forward several thousand years to Iraq and Syria, where Islamic State are spraying this symbol on doorposts to say, these people belong to the Nazarene, go get them. And people put it on their Facebook statuses, saying we identify with this, but it was a very safe place to put that symbol on your Facebook status. It's a very different thing to have it on your doorpost in Mosul. This is a sign of condemnation, but it's a sign of public affirmation of faith as well. I belong to the Nazarene. This is like a, those, that blood on the lintel was like a neon sign saying, I belong to Yahweh, I belong to Jesus. Has anyone seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, with Charlton Heston? He definitely had a big gray beard, didn't he? He was playing Moses. And the scene where they do the Passover is a fantastic scene. Um, and they, they do the, the, the painting on the lintels. By the way, I don't think, it says that they painted the blood on the lintels so the angel of death, I don't think it was an administrative task. I don't think the angel was going to call, oh, they've got one, tick, uh, they haven't got one. I think there was something else going on. Because there's a great scene in that movie where some Egyptians find refuge in the home of the Israelites. If you're an Egyptian and you know that the terror and these dire warnings are coming your way and you want to get away from them, you want to repent, where do you go? You go to the house that's got the red blood on its doorposts. People still turn to the church remarkably in an age where the church is apparently dead. They turn to the church. We get people knocking on the door saying, we were told to come to church for some food. Come for a job. Come to get advice about debt. Mick even got a request to go to a local shop because they were having some strange supernatural happenings in their shop. They knew they're not Christians, per se. They knew that bloke who goes and drinks coffee and being loved regularly. I think he's a shareholder now. <laughs> he's a Christian. He's from the church. So a couple of weeks ago, and I've heard about it, Lisa and Mick go to the shop and they pray in that shop in the name of Jesus. I don't think there's been anything reported since then. They said, we don't know what to do. Let's turn to the church. They would not have known who to turn to if they didn't know that Mick was a Christian. They didn't know because he'd kept his faith private. Why do we need to do it? It's because it is desperately needed. A prophetic witness is desperately needed 
out there. People are going down the plug hole. Society is as well. Um, because the church is not standing up and saying, this is the way the Lord wants us to work. Because we're a little bit scared. Fear is the driving force for keeping our faith private. And I'm not talking about badgering people over the head with the Bible and saying, you must be saved. That's not effective. But telling them that they're loved, they're valued, demonstrating it, giving them food, giving them a hope, giving them a future. That's what the good news is. It's real. It's not painting over the cracks. It's not saying everything is nice. It's saying that life is tough out there. This is the reason why. This is what can be done. And this is the hope for the future. Now, that is good news, isn't it? And that is what we are called to take part in. I did the really silly thing. I continued reading into the next chapter of Ezekiel. Please don't do that. (laughs) I know I'm not supposed to say that, but please do, actually. Because it says about the fact that whether people respond to the word or not, we are responsible. We have a share of the blame if we don't tell people. That was horrifying to me because I've realized the number of times I have chickened out of sharing something of Jesus, either vocally or in the way that I've lived, that has meant that someone may never have heard something or saw something that would have attracted them to Jesus. And I share the responsibility and the blame for that. This is not meant to be a guilt trip. It's a call to arms. It's a call to arms. We are the watchmen on the walls. That's what Ezekiel is called. Who can see what's coming is warning people and saying there is hope, there is freedom from this, but you've got to react now. Whenever Jesus says, I'm coming soon, it's not that it's like in 25 minutes time. He is coming, we don't know when, but it will be soon. It has been soon since AD 33. It is soon now. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in in the midst of trumpets one to six where there's judgment and persecution and and conquest and, and catastrophe? The world we live in, how can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard about? And how can they hear without someone preaching them, without someone telling them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? Let me tell you, to each and every one of us here, this is a mandate to our sentedness. Sentedness. And we are called to a prophetic witness, which is when heaven meets earth through our words, through our actions, through our lives, our choices. And then is written, how beautiful How beautiful, how sweet, how wonderful are the feet of those who bring good news. Amen? Amen.